By listening to this podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in yourself or others, including, but not limited to, patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall any guests or contributors to the podcast or any employees, associates, or affiliates of the Neuroendocrine Cancer Awareness Network be responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast. Welcome to the Nets Get Real by NCAN. I am Marianne Wayman, the founder, uh, co-founder of the Neuroendocrine Cancer Awareness Network. And today we have my co-host, Michael Wayman, who happens to be my son Hello. as well. So this, I'm doing good. Thank you, Michael, for helping. Um, this episode, we have Dr. Mary Maluccio from uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, and she will be briefly talking about clinical trials. Um, before we jump into that, we want to remind you that the 2022 National Conference is November 10th to the 12th, where the zebras take Atlanta. Yep, it's, that's a hashtag. Yes. Uh, oh, sorry. Hashtag. It's taking place at the Marriott Marquis, where we will have over 20 net professionals on hand to share presentations and answer your questions. Registration is open. And for more information, go to our website, netcancerawareness.org, or our social medias at netcancerawareness. Now, I'd like to welcome um, Dr. Mary Maluccio. And before we get to our pres the presentation, um, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm going to ask you several questions. Um, what led you to become a net specialist? Um, okay. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. So I'm Mary Maluccio. I'm the medical director of the neuroendocrine, New um, neuroendocrine program in New Orleans. And I actually got into neuroendocrines in a somewhat unconventional um, way. So I am actually a program builder. I'm a cancer program uh, builder. And um, in my professional life, I have focused mostly on patients who I consider marginalized and marginalized patients can be for a variety of reasons. But when it comes to neuroendocrine, um, it can be because it's a rare diagnosis for which your outcomes are linked to um, finding someone that understands your disease and the treatment, but that it can also be because you live in a rural state that that um, doesn't have a lot of regional centers or you live in a part of the country where where you have to travel for subspecialty care. So neuroendocrine is is by definition a marginalized patient group because it's less than 10 per 100,000 uh, people. And there are very few neuroendocrine subspecialty programs, although there are a handful throughout the United States. And um, so how I got into neuroendocrine was uh, because people were asking us as a very large transplant program in Indianapolis to consider transplanting patients with the diagnosis of metastatic neuroendocrine tumors. And since transplant is so highly regulated, you needed to not only become a neuroendocrine subspecialist, you needed to build a program that had not just transplants on the menu. So we, we actually got into to neuroendocrine by large neuroendocrine programs like my own 
actually sending patients to Indianapolis for single organ or multi-organ transplants. So even though now I run a, the larger program, I, um, I still am a value to the neuroendocrine community in the world of transplants since those patient, those people remain my closest personal and professional friends. And therefore when people need an advice and or referral, those transplant programs still rely on me to, to sort of set the stage with the patient on why that is more or less appropriate in their case. That's wonderful. Well, we're very glad to have you in the net community. Um, why is it so important for a patient to be involved in their treatment? Well, you, Marianne, are one of the strongest voices and strongest advocates for, for patients really um, finding the resources they need, using the resources that are available, even using regional support groups to find those resources locally. Um, so as I implied, when you have a rare cancer diagnosis, um, oftentimes you will see medical professionals that are just you know, unfamiliar with the diagnosis, or even if they are, they don't live their, their life in it, and therefore they aren't aware of the progress that's being made. And I think there's enormous progress that's been made in neuroendocrine over the last 10 years. So in being your own advocate or learning to ask questions or learning to find medical providers that are truly invested in your, in your case, doesn't necessarily mean that every single patient needs to be cared for by a neuroendocrine specialist. We have many friends in the southern part of this country that help us take care of neuroendocrine patients, but don't live in the world of, of neuroendocrine. But that in, in finding the resources that you need to ask the right questions so that your medical provider closer to home can be more comfortable managing you in that setting, I just can't express enough how important it is to better understand your disease, how it fits in the context of, of an ocean of neuroendocrine that can be very confusing, and how many of the neuroendocrine programs around the country have used the pandemic to actually expand our influence without having to pull patients across state lines necessarily into our subspecialty programs. That's great. Um, now, with regard to getting patient care, what's the most important decision a net patient uh, should take? So I think the decision is that it can't be a single opinion and a single opinion alone. So we keep talking about multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary. I think it almost becomes a cliche that people don't quite understand. And people will say, oh, my gosh, there's Maluccio getting on her soapbox of multidisciplinary again. <laughs> um, but really, multidisciplinary is a checks and balances whereby a program isn't driven by one opinion and one opinion alone. And that's where I think that I will say that although surgery is not appropriate for all patients, I believe that every patient deserves to have that discussion and that explanation come out of the um, mouth of a surgeon as part of that multidisciplinary group. And I think that's what patients complain about most since we tend to be a surg surgically assertive group. A lot of the second opinions will be because they they just feel that, that that wasn't given to them. That explanation wasn't given to them. And it wasn't, doesn't mean that it wasn't the correct you know, thing to, to, to recommend. It's right. just that they never heard it out of the mouth of a surgeon. And, and I just believe that 
the medicine side should come out of the mouth of a medicine guy. You shouldn't have a surgeon telling you that chemotherapy is or is not appropriate. And you shouldn't have um, surgery more or less appropriate come out of the mouth of a non-surgeon. Absolutely. Very true. So, uh, so what are you going to be talking to us about today? So I was, uh, this is kind of the clinical trials for dummies course, because obviously clinical trials actually run under the umbrella of medical oncology. And I 100% respect um, my medical oncology colleagues, nor do I want you taking all your advice about clinical trials from a surgeon, just because I just told you that it's the checks and balances. But I feel that sometimes the way that medical oncologists describe clinical trials is not actually at the level that that even some surgical oncologists understand, but definitely the patients don't may, maybe understand. So I just chose clinical trials at, from a slightly different perspective, some, since most clinical trial talks are given by medical oncologists. Perfect. All right. Uh, well, we're going to pop out of here and you go ahead and take it away. Okay, so my, t my topic is on, um, on clinical trials. I am a professor of surgery and surgical oncology, and I run the um, program down in New Orleans. So my objectives for this talk was to improve the understanding of what clinical trials are, because even though I think we, we all think we know what they are, I just thought that I would better explain what they are to understand why clinical trials are important in neuroendocrine. And since I am also interested in other rare, rare cancer diagnoses, they are equally as important in other rare cancer diagnoses. The different types of clinical trials and how that relates to the patient, how they integrate into multidisciplinary cancer programs. And then with each, I thought I would give an, an example so that this audience could better understand um, what types of questions they would ask or what some of the clinical trials are that are out there and how they, they fit into what it is I'm, I'm talking about. So what are clinical trials? So clinical trials by definition are experiments. So they're experiments or they're observations. They can be drug trials, they can be dietary trials, they can be a whole lot of different trials, but they're done in clinical research, meaning that they are a half a degree or a quarter degree of separation of a patient. So they are on human participants and they are designed to answer specific questions. So they're definable questions about biomedical or behavioral interventions. They can include treatments in novel drugs, dietary choices, dietary supplements, and medical devices. But as I am going to allude, there are also other clinical trials that may um, be associated with biomarker discovery. So for drugs and biomedical devices, clinical trials are required in order to get FDA approval for a given indication. So oftentimes the, the drug or the medical device may, may make a whole lot of sense, but that it has not yet been proven in neuroendocrine. And therefore, even though we know a lot about it, we have to, to test it and or at least do some due diligence before we make it mainstream in neuroendocrine. So the whole concept of a guinea pig. So you know, so just because of just a lot of, and it's not really necessarily misinformation because preclinical trials are done in, in animals, but that the whole idea of a guinea pig dates back to um, the time when the guinea pig was actually a natural, um, you know, creature that developed infectious diseases that were very much relevant to what was going on in the 1800s. So the guinea pig dates back to the 1800s where it was susceptible to certain diseases and therefore was just used to discover the 
types of processes that were responsible for things like anthrax, but also were then used to try to test out the treatments for anthrax that ultimately then ended up getting into humans. So now they also have a calm and gentle demeanor, not to say that human beings all have a calm and gentle demeanor, but that they were then a relatively easy animal to do these initial uh, trials in because they did not have uh, an aggressive behavior because we have to remember that, you know, rabies and things like that were, would have been a problem. So um, the fact that they were the, the recipient of the problem, meaning they developed some of these infectious diseases, whereby you, in treating them, you would be able to then extrapolate that to human beings. They became then for a long time, the preclinical model that seemed quote unquote relevant to humans. Now, there are a few studies that actually use guinea pigs anymore, but the whole idea of being a guinea pig is feeling like someone is taking advantage of the fact that you have a medical condition and testing unproven things on you. And I just really want to get across in this talk that that is not the case. And that um, that if you are ever feeling like, like you are, you're that proverbial guinea pig, it's probably because we have not taken enough time to explain to you the relevance of a particular clinical trial or device in your case. So why are clinical trials important and why I'm, I am particularly interested in them as someone that focuses on rare cancers and neuroendocrine? So clinical trials are important because they will often include drugs or devices that are considered improvements on the technology that we currently have and potentially better than what is currently available. So that these are often promising things, but that because they haven't gone through the appropriate regulatory measures, they aren't readily available and therefore patients don't have access to them. And the only way that we will get patients advocates access to them is to have the clinical trials. So many net trials, just because this is a particular for, for neuroendocrine patients, many net trials in the US are actually for treatments that are already available elsewhere. Usually it's gonna be Europe. So these are treatments that are available to patients in Europe or to US patients that have the means to go to Europe. And so they aren't actually untested. They actually aren't even necessarily considered experimental in Europe, but because they are not FDA approved in the United States, they need to go through a clinical trial. They are offer potential treatments for patients who are not covered for certain type of treatments through their insurance uh, coverage. So for example, in the last five years, as PRRT has been made available in the, in the United States for both standard of care, as well as clinical trials that I will go into, but that with insurance, insurance, certain insurance coverages, um, PRT is not yet available. So therefore, you are then lacking the ability to treat certain patients, but that in by bringing in clinical trials, it makes those treatments available to those additionally marginalized patients. So that is, is something that, that I am particularly interested when it comes to the southern part of the uh, U.S., and then there are trials that are particularly relevant to patients who live in certain parts of the country or world 
where access to resources is limited. And therefore, some of the novel approaches that we are using, I will come up with examples of that as well, would make treatments that are somewhat limited to either subspecialty programs or parts of the country of the US or the United States of America, but not necessarily Africa. All of a sudden, we need to then focus on some of the therapeutic advantages that may be particularly relevant to those patient populations. So there are three types of clinical trials. And the reason why I actually bring this up is because I actually don't think that patients understand it at all, nor do medical oncologists necessarily explain it in the context of the clinical trials that are being offered, even though it is very clear on the clinical trial website or in the clinical trial you know, program uh, leaflet on the, the type of trial it is. So phase one trials means that they are not testing whether or not that treatment is effective. It doesn't mean that the treatment is not effective. It just means that that trial is not testing that, nor is it going to have enough patients in the trial to make any firm conclusions about effectiveness. And since a lot of patients are going into treatment saying, well, I obviously want it to be effective, then it's really important to understand that the phase one trial is not testing that. So it's predominantly in safety and toxicity. Phase two is about effectiveness, even though it's not that phase one won't imply something because you will study it in, 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 in a certain number of patients. But phase two is when you're looking at effectiveness in whatever patient population you're studying. And then phase three, the bar is set much higher. There are many more patients involved. And that is when you are comparing it to current standards of care or current doses or current regimens, whereby you're trying to change how we are offering those treatments to the, the patients. And then in that same you know, type of categorization, there are industry-sponsored trials which then, you know, brings in then some, maybe some perception of there being conflicts of interest, although I would not agree with that. So industry sponsored, meaning that the industry itself is supporting the financial infrastructure to make that happen. We would not survive without partnerships with industry and industry sponsored trials. There are industry collaborative trials, meaning that the industry is not necessarily supporting it financially, but is offering to that program or to that patient or to that site, whatever is required to make it happen. So that could be um, a drug that is, um, that is FDA available, but is being used in a different context, and they're going to supply the, the, the drug. And then there's investigator initiated, which is that different programs may have different strengths and or, or areas of expertise for which they would be able to test something that another program wouldn't have the volumes to do. So that's when a subspecialist like myself or one of my partners would test out something within the context of a surgery and we would be able to then collaborate with either other centers or within our own um, uh, institution to make that, that happen, whereby then we are using our strengths to then support that 
for the uh, neuroendocrine community at large. Now, there are other types of trials that don't even fall into necessarily to the phase one, phase two, phase three. So biomarker trials, something that I'm also particularly interested is when we are trying to test something in, in tissue or in blood to better understand why one patient responds differently to a certain therapy. So those type of trials require a robust tissue acquisition protocol. So therefore, if you come to many of the subspecialty neuroendocrine programs, we will ask you whether or not you want your tissue or blood or whole blood or serum or plasma or urine or bile banked because in case there are then progress made in different areas of treatment that require then blood to use as a biomarker of whether or not you would be more or less appropriate or more or less a responder, we would be able to go back and have that blood. So biomarker trials are where we will use tissue and blood in a patient like neuroendocrine that often live a long time and are exposed to a number of different treatments over the course of their lifetime. It's our ability to test out whether or not in retrospect, we would have better understood why someone did or did not respond or to use those blood markers as a way of being able to reassure ourselves or our patient that they are actually responding, even though the imaging may not be so obvious. On that note, imaging trials are also trying to look at the imaging techniques that are available or coming down the pike that may better assess response to a certain therapy or active versus dead disease or extent of disease. So we better understand the disease burden that may make someone more or less appropriate for a different therapy. So that's just using things like MRI or CT scan or PET imaging to, to evaluate how a patient is inter interacting with whatever treatment they're on. And then there are device trials of which that's when different medical devices, whether or not that be pump devices, depot injections for people with, with neuroendocrine, or in, in our world of surgical cytoreduction, it would be using a PET probe to better identify areas that are, um, uh, that are involved, whereby we would be able to reassure ourselves that we are targeting the appropriate um, abnormality and trying to minimize the risk of an operation when we have less uh, precise instruments to tell us exactly where the disease is. So I'm starting with phase two because phase two is the one that is often kind of readily available and may make the most sense for a patient with a neuroendocrine or, or rare tumor because it is testing effectiveness and it will often test effectiveness in a, in a particular patient type. So these trials are in drugs or devices that are considered safe. They've already been through phase one trials or they've already been tested in another type of cancer. We already understand the doses that we are using. We are already understanding the indication and how it's going to be delivered. But that for whatever reason, which is outlined in the trial, it hasn't been tested with enough due diligence 
to make it become a standard of care in something like neuroendocrine. There's already been a proof of concept in a per particular patient population. And when these trials are being done at a neuroendocrine subspecialty center, then there has been proof of concept that it is appropriate for neuroendocrine patients. And the effect of this has not been proven. That means that in the phase one, there may have been some buzz about the, the effectiveness being maybe even better than what we currently have. We can't imply that. We can't assume that that's going to pan out when we study it in a phase, phase two. So I often caution people about getting too excited about something, even though we do, when, when something's going into phase two trials because it still is in the category of untested when it comes to effectiveness. So the preliminary evidence would suggest that it's effective. We haven't yet proven it, but it is a promising new treatment. So the example to that that's getting a lot of buzz right now is the PB212. That's the radio radioactive lead PRRT trial. And that is just a novel radioisotope. So currently we use something called lutetium-177 or lutathera. That has already been through phase three. It has already now entered standard clinical practice for appropriate patients. But radioactive lead may be either an improvement or an alternative that may be more or less appropriate for certain patients. So radioactive lead is now in phase two, two trials, mostly for patients who have not been exposed to any other type of radioisotope therapy like, like uh, lutetium-177, although that may evolve, but that it's gotten a lot of buzz and I think a lot of us are excited about it. So it's not yet FDA approved, but it is available in certain parts of the country under trial. So if you are finding someone, if a patient, or you, you as a patient are being considered for PRRT, then you would be able to look into the PV212 trial. Other types of things that, so that's an industry-sponsored trial. Other types of, of trials that may be more industry collaborative or even investigator-initiated is there will be certain neuroendocrine programs that are extraordinarily strong in liver-directed treatment like embolization. And using combinations of therapies, whether or not that be liver-directed therapies plus PRT or liver-directed therapies plus um, chemotherapy or liver-directed therapies plus immune therapy. So all of those are using a technique that is well-tested in neuroendocrine using maybe even another drug or whatever that is tested in neuroendocrine, but they've not been used in combination, but because the preliminary data or certain types of patient populations seem appropriate uh, for it, it is then done under a clinical trial um, in order to make sure that we are following those patients with the same regulatory parameters that are required for a clinical trial. So phase three, I choose phase three because that's the one that's, that's once again closest to FDA approve, uh, approval. So phase three trials are often, maybe not always, but often required in many cases in order to get FDA approval for whatever new drug or, or device. 
The treatment is already considered effective, although there is not any firm conclusion on whether or not it's any more effective than what is currently being offered because they've never been tested head to head. And they will often be comparing an FDA approved treatment or a current strategy to one that is not yet approved for whatever clinical indication you're trying to get it approved for. So I think that the one that patients are gonna be most familiar with, even they, though they may not have understood that it was a phase three trial, is going to be the Netter trial that ultimately got Latizium-177 FDA approved in the United States of America. So Latizium-177 was being used in Europe for years before it came over to the US. But that in the US, the strategies that we were using in patients who were showing signs of tumor growth, despite being on the somatostatin receptor inhibitor injections, the sandostatins or the lenreotide injections, is our strategy was to just go up on the dose of the injections. So for patients that are under my care and how I describe those injections to you is that it's like injecting you with a bunch of little cars that are driving over your entire body, trying to look for a parking space, what is really a receptor on these types of cells. And like a police officer putting a boot on that, that car, it's trying to cripple that cell and mess with the mechanisms by which it divides. And those drugs are of proven effectiveness in delaying tumor growth over what can be a very long lifetime for neuroendocrine patients. But there will be patients who reach a fork in the road where they show signs of progression or tumor growth, even though they're on the drug. So this trial was testing out the escalating doses of that drug, which for me is saying we're going to send in more cars. And sending in more cars sounds logical. Unfortunately, it really, we probably weren't seeing the, the effectiveness that we would have hoped, but that it wasn't that it wasn't working. It was just that it had not really been tested compared to other types of therapies. So that trial, that Netter trial, compared in a phase three PRT with latissimum to the escalated dose of somatostatin receptor inhibitor therapy and PRRT won that race. It was considerably more effective at delaying tumor growth over time than the strategy that we had been using. So even though it may or may not be appropriate for all patients, it was tested against a strategy that we were using and came out as what is likely the more appropriate strategy, which is why it got a lot of buzz and which is why we use a lot more PRT than we imagined we would be using before that trial. The other one would be using a new type of depot. So that's that's the, the depot injections that are often required to be given in an infusion center, or some patients can find someone closer to home to give it to them, but that they're trying to find novel ways where you would be able to actually teach a patient a, to realistically be able to inject themselves which for those of us that live in the southern part of the country, where it is a lot more rural, that may make more sense in this part of the country than a part of the country where infusion centers are, are readily available, but that that would be another example where we would have to test that against something that is the current standard.
So then I'm finishing up with phase one because that's where I think patients get, get the most confused. So phase one trials is that the primary endpoint is not about effectiveness. It is about safety and toxicity, and it will often be in looking at increasing doses or changing doses to better understand what's the maximal tolerated dose for the type of, and of effectiveness that we're looking for. So since effectiveness is not being measured, we can't use phase one studies in order to get something approved. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't follow those patients and see whether or not they have any tumor shrinkage or any change in symptoms or any change in imaging. It's just that you don't have enough power to those observations to make that conclusion. So they will often, as I said before, they will often test different doses to find the one that seems most appropriate to put into phase two trials. But the thing that people have to really be careful of is that they may not be disease specific. So if you were to look at the clinical trials, even the phase one trials that are being conducted in neuroendocrine subspecialty centers, well, we are usually looking for the phase one drugs that are gonna be most appropriate for neuroendocrine patients but that they could be being studied in, in patients with a number of GI cancers. So before you go into a phase one trial, it's gonna be important for you to ask how this is relevant to your disease or your type of cancer versus other types of cancers that may also be included in the testing of that drug because the trial may not be neuroendocrine specific, and they will often be targeting patients who are not responding to standard treatments, which is appropriate. It means that we are targeting the most vulnerable because we're, we're using what it is that we think should be working, but it's not working, and therefore we need to, to try to, to look maybe at, at things that would not be standards in neuroendocrine or other rare cancers, but are, are being tested in these other, other diseases. That's where a little bit of some of the corroborative studies or the associative studies that we use with, with what I call the biomarkers and the, and the liquid biopsy, the serologic markers, I think are, are important. So these are just questions that I think patients should ask or probably ask in their own minds. So how do you know about clinical trials? Well, the fact is you have to be pretty savvy to know where to look, even though within the United States of America, it is required that these types of things are published. But if you don't know where to look, then you're not even going to know where they are or whether or not you are eligible. So how you would know if you're a neuroendocrine patient is you would, you would usually go to the website or get in contact with some of the, we are all in neuroendocrine subspecialty programs, because we all get along super well. We are really collaborative. We are not competitive and we are all just in it for, for neuroendocrine patients. So I will usually know what is being offered at, at other, other sites. And we will often have the resources to help patients find clinical trials that are offered at 
sites like Memorial Sloan Kettering or MD Anderson as well. Trials are registered on the federal government site at clinicaltrials.org. Although if you go to clinicaltrials.org, there are a lot of search phrases and it can be very confusing because obviously that is all clinical trials in the entire United States of America, of which they're probably going to be like 100,000. So it's a little bit hard to sift through all that to know something that's relevant to you. But I do want you to know that it's not like centers around the United States are going rogue and doing these experimental trials without government regulation because they have to be registered on that site. Industry sponsored trials will be listed on that company uh, site. Trials are published in that specific websites like on, on an NCAN website or the NANETS website or the NETRF website. And, and I think what I'll add to, to, to this slideshow is, is potentially the URLs that get you to those sites, or I'm sure that the, the NCAN uh, uh, organization can probably publish those um, uh, for you on the internet. They are often discussed at net specific uh, support groups. Um, so whether or not that be regional support groups or support groups online, where you can then reach out and other patients may be a lot savvier about what's going on. And then there would be mainstream media outlets that obviously are more prone to give information about clinical trials involving the more common cancers like breast, colon, lung, or, or prostate. It's not like, like neuroendocrine never makes it into, into the media because I, because I really think that, that certainly the PRT got a lot of buzz when it became FDA approved. And then how do I know if I should be considering a clinical trial? Well, even if it's bioacquisition trials or tissue banking trials or imaging trials, I would, I would ask what trials are available and make yourself available for any clinical trial that you think is ultimately going to potentially help you over the course of what can be a long journey with neuroendocrine. So first and foremost, ask your doctor. And if your doctor is unfamiliar with maybe some of the resources that are available for neuroendocrine specific, then I would make a plug for, for organizations like NCAN because these patient advocacy groups are not only trying to encourage you to be your own advocate, but are really literally doing these types of things and getting the word out, being an advocate on your behalf. So how do I know if I'm eligible for a clinical trial? That actually can be super confusing. So you need to be your best advocate, as Marianne Woman says, you need to be your best advocate, but know you also have resources. The eligibility criteria is a component of the clinical trial, and that is available to you either through the sponsor of the trial or through the, the center who is conducting the trial. So if we are conducting a trial, then it is important that we get that information to you and explain to you why you would or would not be appropriate or eligible for that trial. And that's because trials have to keep as, as little variability into the clinical trial in order to, to give themselves the best chance of, of making appropriate and accurate conclusions. So there are eligibility and ineligibility criteria. So for example, to be eligible for a clinical trial using a chemotherapy, you may or may not have been able to have other types of therapies like liver-directed therapies or radioisotope therapies within a certain amount of time before going on that drug. 
or vice versa, you may not be able to go on a targeted therapy trial if you have been on chemotherapy and have not yet either shown signs of progression. So that it doesn't mean that you will never be eligible, you just would not necessarily be eligible at that point. So it's just really important that you understand how you fit into those criteria. You also need to know what's required for that trial. So what's expected of you? What's expected of the doctor? Do you have to travel? Do you have to pay your own way or does the trial pay pay your own way? Are you required to stay over overnight? So for people that are crossing state lines, that becomes super important because it may or may not be feasible for you to be able to participate if those types of criteria are just, you know, out of the of, of your realm. There are organizations out there that try to advocate for patients in hopes of getting appropriate people into a clinical trial and helping them with some of that financial um, uh, assistance. But it is important to know that you may be eligible for a clinical trial, but because of where you live, your inability to cross state lines, some comorbid conditions, there may be reasons why it's just not going to be great. And then there are going to be other, other medical conditions. For example, in cancer, if you have another diagnosis of a different type of cancer, that's often excluded just because it's, it just makes that component messy. It doesn't mean that once that, that method, medical device or treatment modality gets FDA approved, that would be, that would make you ineligible. It's just that in the context of a clinical trial, you have to try to keep it as homogenous as possible. So this is my food for thought, which is right, right after my summary slide. So my food for, for thought is that I do believe as a net community, we can do better with clinical trial you know, development. As I said before, we are super collaborative, but all of us are also really busy and, and the just you know, resources and things like that during the pandemic. We are all sort of strained to the limits where we're keeping ourselves updated on all that's available um, has just not been as easy. We haven't had our national meetings or they've been online, which I don't think is conducive to a lot of, of really active participation and engagement. And I think that now that the pandemic restrictions are lifting and or have lifted and we're going back to in-person meetings, I think it's going to make it a lot easier uh, for us to better understand what's out there at all sites, including the the maybe some of the non-neuroendocrine specific sites. So I think we can do a lot better within the neuroendocrine environment, making patients better understand what is available. We need a little bit more collaboration, even though I promise you we all get along actually super duper well and are super uh, collaborative. And we just want what's in the best interest of neuroendocrine uh, patients. Um, I think we need to be more collaborative in making sure that all patients have the best chance at success. That's where I have a plug in for being the, the largest neuroendocrine program within the Southern region, and therefore being responsible for patients that come from um, five different Southern, Southern states. I, I feel like I need to be more proactive at getting uh, involved in collaborative multi-institutional trials on behalf of the patients that will not be able to uh, to cross state lines to to participate in a clinical trial out of state. The interinstitutional support is making sure that we use our own programmatic sites, our own media presence, our own support groups, our own patient advocacy 
to make sure that we get the word out on clinical trials that are available, not only at our site, but at other sites. We really, really need people to understand what's happening in the world of neuroendocrine. I think we need more participation of all of our, of our collaborative network in patient support groups and, and networks, and whether or not that be using the Zoom platform to do something like, like this and get the word out to, to, to patients as they're meeting within their regional um, uh, support group areas in the South or the mid, uh, Midwest. And I think we have to be better at interinstitutional accrual, meaning that I would use my influence on, on the patient's down here in order to do whatever I can to get them a slot in, an, in a clinical trial elsewhere that I think is appropriate. And then my summary slide is that, that I just want people to know that clinical trials are critical for patients with rare cancer diagnoses. So it's the only way that we can improve access to certain types of patients that would not actually be have access to some of the standard of care treatments or treatments that are available to people with more, more means. It is the way that we can get some of these things through the FDA and into, um, into clinical practice with, with as little bumps in the road as, as possible. And I just think that for the most part, rare cancer diagnoses are not necessarily on the radar of, um, of, the national, um, uh, at the national stage, like the NIH or things like that, because there's just a lot more attention put onto more common cancers like breast, colon, lung. So I'm trying to, to be diplomatic without, without saying, hey, I think rare cancer diagnoses little, need a little bit more attention on the national stage. We need to make sure there's diversity in in accrual so that it's not just testing it on a patient uh, population that comes from a certain part of the country, a certain part of the, of the world. And that's why I think we need a lot more interinstitutional collaboration. I promise you, promise you, promise you, you are not a guinea pig. And, and that if we don't explain that enough, we are not doing a good enough job. We do not put you in a straitjacket and march you into these, these clinical trials. You are allowed to pull out of the clinical trial. You are allowed to ask as many questions as you want um, before you go into a clinical trial. You can ask questions all along the, the journey through a clinical trial. Um, this is unequivocally um, something that is supposed to be in your best interest and your doctor is supposed to be your advocate. So if you even remotely feel like a guinea pig, you need to ask more and more questions in, in order to alleviate that, that feeling and know that you, you are doing what's right for you. I think your relationship with your cancer doctor is really important. Um, and, and that certainly what I learned in the last two and a half years of the pandemic is that is that in the South, that that doctor does not have to, to necessarily be an all-in neuroendocrine subspecialist. We have a huge network of incredibly invaluable um, clinical partnerships in the South that help us manage neuroendocrine patients in the five Southern state uh, uh, radius. And, and for the most part, my network of, of professional partners have no qualms about allowing you to get a second opinion from a net specialty program. 
I think that what we learned from the pandemic is we could have a lot more influence outside of our, our, our little, you know, nucleus or even our region by being available over the virtual platform. I think none of us are, are giving that, um, that up. And other than having to have and or develop strong relationships with the providers that are giving you care closer to home in states that we're not licensed in, we can have that relationship with your with your doctor and you still feel like you're you're getting a second opinion before making that decision. And then information is available and this is highly regulated. You just need to know where to look and that national patient advocacy groups are here for you. So those are advocacy like NCAN. The other two that I think are really strong advocates for neuroendocrine patients in particular is the Carcinoid Cancer uh, Foundation. And these are things that would, they're really trying to build that, that collaborative network that I, that I described over the course of this, of this talk. But they are very much patient advocates. They are also, to a certain extent, doctor advocates because I think they they want the neuroendocrine doctors like myself to get out there and have more influence in their world. But more so than them being an advocate for me, they are an advocate for neuroendocrine patients and whatever maybe reservations you have for or against something um, related to a clinical trial. I think they're a really good sounding board in the types of questions that you would ask your provider. So. Thank you, thank you very much for, for tuning into this um, slideshow. I'm Mary Maluccio, Medical Director of the Neuroendocrine Program in New Orleans. Thank, oh, thank you so much, Dr. Maluccio. Um, you really hit on uh, a really close, dear to my heart topic of clinical trials. Um, I think that patients are really afraid of doing it, but um, if we don't have people doing clinical trials, we're not getting those drugs on the onto the patients and uh, it's very important. Um, you know, 21 years ago when I was diagnosed, there was standostatin and that was it and there was octreotide. And without those clinical trials, we would never have the gallium scan, the PRRT or any of those other life-saving drugs that we have. So it's extending the patient's lives by doing these clinical trials. If you wanna learn more about this topic or many other topics, please make sure you join us at the National Conference in Atlanta. It's going to be a great experience. Uh, we're hoping to have about four or 500 patients there. We have 20 doctors that'll be there. Um, also go to your local chapter support group meetings. Um, some of them are virtually and some are also going to be uh, in person. Um, these uh, Watch some of the videos that we've published on our new YouTube channel. And we look forward to hearing about the new discoveries from now until the next topic. Thank you again, Mary. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and if you like this program, please make sure you uh, give us a follow on whatever platform you're listening or watching us on. Uh, follow it, like it, subscribe it, give a five-star review because those five-star reviews actually beat the algorithms and that helps create more awareness. And that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to create awareness. Um, follow us on our social medias at NetCancerAware. Go to our website for more information on all the events that we have coming up uh, to find a local support group chapter near you and uh, tons and tons of other awesome resources, resources to navigate this disease. So uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, our relaunch of Nets Get Real, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. <laughs>